Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya, and I'm studying Masters in Bioengineering at Cambridge. And I'm Thomas, I'm a researcher in engineering. And we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. So Thomas, what have you been up to this week? I'm organizing a conference right now uh, centered around human and artificial intelligence. And I'm still wrapping my head around this new technology. (laughs) Aren't we all? Nice. I went coxing this week and for once it was nice not to be dressed like an Eskimo because it's minus two outside. So that's been a really nice change. So for this episode, we'll be talking to Nisarg from Vector AI and we're recording in the hustle and bustle at Ideaspace. So Thomas, what are you hoping to get out of our talk with Nisarg today? Well, I'm really interested to hear how they have applied artificial intelligence and machine learning to international trade and logistics which is a, a, a sector and an industry I haven't really a lot of knowledge about. So I'm curious to hear what they have come up with. Yeah, no, definitely. Me too. I was reading up about it last night, so I didn't embarrass myself today. <laughs> so for this episode, we're really excited to welcome Nisarg to QTalks. Um, Nisarg is the CTO and co-founder of Vector AI. And we're really looking forward to talking to him about the role that technical skills can play um, in the founding of a startup. And so, Nisarg, thank you very much for coming on the show with us. Thank um, you. If you could maybe start by telling us a bit about your background and how you ended up at Vector AI today. Sure. I guess I'll start from the beginning. I was born in India, in Mumbai. I studied there until I was 18 years old. That's when I moved to the Cambridge Always wanted to do engineering, so I was in the engineering mm. department. Mm-hmm. Um, really enjoyed kind of the early stages of the Cambridge course, uh, the broad introduction to all of engineering. But then I rapidly found that I enjoyed the maths aspect of it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in the second year taking uh, computer vision as the elective. And uh, that was, I think, the turning point for me in realizing what it is that I really want to do and it came at the perfect time because I was like okay I have to make a choice now (laughs) in third year and fourth year about what really I want to do and computer vision and machine learning seemed like a really good fit for the maths that I really enjoyed and the real world applications that I kind of wanted to explore. Um, I did a bunch of projects with uh, the computer vision lab in the department, Uh, worked briefly with Microsoft Research uh, first for the research internship and then did a longer one-year project with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduated and started Vector with James, my co-founder. So I guess that's a very high-level, quick story um, of my background. Okay, nice. And then um, maybe you could tell us a bit about what it is that Vector AI does. Yes. So Vector AI operates in the biggest industry that nobody has ever heard about. Uh, which is international trade and logistics. Mm -hmm. So everybody kind of knows what it does and what it is and has seen massive ships and containers, but nobody really understands what goes on in the entire industry. Mm. So today, if, say, I want to ship 
500 boxes of jeans from somewhere in India to, to a Gap store um, here in the UK. It isn't a very simple transaction, put the 500 boxes on a ship and let them come to, to London or Bristol or wherever, have a port. Mm. Uh, there's actually 15 to 20 companies and institutions involved in that entire process. So you've got the importer and the exporter. They have banks, they have insurance companies, shipping companies, freight forwarding companies, port authorities, customs, governments. And all these institutions need to communicate with each other and they need to, um, to organize the interflow of information so that they can move the goods from one place to the other. And as you can imagine, this is already a little bit of a mess because I could have a, a Chinese bank and a Danish shipping company and a French insurance company and the Indian government and the British government, and they're never going to use a single system of information interchange. So they resort to the oldest form of communication known to man, which is paper. <laughs> paper works because obviously everybody can read it, but the problem is everybody has to read it. So if you're a small company, it's not a huge problem. But if you're a large port or a large customs authority or a large bank, you have to process lots and lots of paper every single day. So a few of the customers that we speak to have hundreds of millions of pieces of paper that they process every year. Um, and this is essentially the problem that we solve, is we help companies involved in international logistics process loads and loads of paper very easily. That's so interesting. How did you guys come across this? And how did you meet your co-founders? Yes, I think, um, so when I graduated, I got an opportunity to join um, Entrepreneur First, mm -hmm. which is an accelerator uh, based out of London and uh, now globally. And that's where I met James, uh, my co-founder. So his background is in, is in finance and logistics. So he worked at a large global bank for almost 10 years, did a variety of roles, um, and ended up being the head of commodity sales for a particular desk at that bank. Uh, he then went to Harvard and did a master's on um, social entrepreneurship and the access to credit. And then he also randomly had a furniture company where he bought furniture from the Far East and sold it to large US um, corporates like Google and Disney Cruises and Thompson Hotels. Huh. And so he had seen international logistics and finance from both aspects, the bank, the finance aspect, and the end customer who is purchasing the, the credit aspect. And so he knew how burdensome the entire process and problems tend to be. That's kind of where Vector comes from is James's um, understanding of the problems in the industry mm -hmm. combined with some of the technical know-how that I had picked up over the years. So, and you became CTO of the company. What does that actually mean? And what are you doing day in, in day out as a CTO? Yeah, I think different people have different interpretations of what that means. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to what is the founding team? What are their strengths? So I would say that the role of CTO, especially at an early stage company like us, isn't as strictly defined as it might be in a, in a larger company. Mm. Um, in very short, it means doing anything and everything that needs to be done. Um, and the way you usually um, do this is when you're a team of two, there are a million things that need to be done. Mm. You do half a million, your co-founder does the other half a million, whoever does whatever, all goes. <laughs> there is... Uh, not 
that strict of a division of responsibilities as you might expect. Um, and so if I am good with, say, also speaking to customers, I will go and do that. Mm-hmm. If um, James can mock up a website to get things going, he will go and do that, even though traditionally mm-hmm. the roles would be reversed in that sense. So it's quite fluid um, in that sense in the very early stages. But um, as you mature, things start to get a little bit more um, defined in terms of who does what. Right. Uh, does a whole lot of interaction, of course. But James largely looks after customer development and fundraising, while I look at hiring, I look at the research aspect of what we do, I look at the the technical development, the stack, the scalability of the product, getting the right team in to build the product and serve the customers. Um, That's kind of high-level answer to what I do day-to-day. Brilliant. So so how much do you get involved with the running of the business versus actually developing the software? Because I know we've talked a little bit about sort of applying the technical skills that you've had in your academic background to what you're doing today. So maybe we could talk a bit about that. Um, yeah. So I think running the business, again, I said, like I said earlier, is quite a, a complex um, kind of task. There is the the high level strategy is in where do we want to take this? Uh, what direction do we go in? What is our target customer set what is the market that we want to dominate and then there's the operational aspect which is who's going to do the finances the the contracts the legal the hiring the accounting and then after that there's the actual tech mm-hmm. and none of these aspects can be ignored you mm-hmm. can think that one is more boring than the other but if any of them falls the company will crumble so um like Earlier in the in the early stages, James and me divided all that, um, depending on who was good at what and who had time to do something else. And then, as you mature, um, things change a little bit. So James focuses now entirely on the strategy and fundraising. I focus entirely on on the product and hiring. And now we have somebody else who helps us with uh, the operational side of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that answer your question or did I just go off on a completely separate tangent? <laughs> no, no, it's good. Maybe, do you have any sort of examples where the the skills that you, the technical skills that you picked up in your academics, so maybe doing your master's or um, your time at Cambridge that you've applied to your, um, to, to your role today or maybe to the running of the startup? Yeah, so definitely on the technical uh, aspect. I think a lot of the courses that I took and a lot of the projects that I did outside the course was where I really kind of cut my teeth um, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with machine learning and technology in general. Yeah, it showed me what technology can do. Um, didn't necessarily show me how to do everything. Yeah, in the short time that I was doing it, but it showed me what can be done and what is the most efficient way to get things done from a technical perspective. For example, if I need to. Um, detect signatures in a, on a document, yeah. um, what's the most efficient way to go about that? Mm-hmm. Now, having done extra projects um, outside of my course, mm-hmm. where I have obviously my course to do, I know that there's a very limited amount of time to do the project, but it's still interesting. <laughs> and so you find shortcuts to, to get to the outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. And that process really helps with... Um, with an early stage startup where you need to build things quickly. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think that is kind of an example. Okay. I would say a lot of the, the projects that I did that weren't required intercodes for, for the course, those were the ones that really helped. Mm. Okay. So really the sort of time management skills in order to make what you're doing the most efficient that it could be. Correct. I think time management is obviously very important. You need to manage um, all the various aspects of building the product and running the company. Um, and you also need to manage people's expectations of what can be built by when and to what level um, so that you, do, you never want to overpromise. Well, you already mentioned that your co-founder, James, uh, he kind of came across this kind of industry problem. But at what point did you guys know that this could be a business for you guys? Um, I think when, when we were exploring different business cases and different ideas, there was a general guiding philosophy that we wanted to, to improve um, efficiency mm. uh, in some overlooked market in the world. Um, we looked at insurance, we looked at international trade and logistics. We looked at a few different ones that were close to James's background and mm. my expertise. Mm. Um, and then I think the way we... The way I think this this idea came about is a lot of people asked us asked for our help to process documents uh, for their supply chain uh, order processing, mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, this sounds like it it's a solved problem in some form or the other. It doesn't sound terribly hard, and so we said, sure, we'll we'll do it. Let's have a look. Um, and then we saw the documents themselves. And we're like, okay, this is not easy. <laughs> this is not a solved problem. Uh, it isn't the simplest thing that anybody can just pick up and do. And there's a reason these companies can't actually solve this. And then in the end, it was like, okay, people actually want to pay us real money mm -hmm. to solve this problem for them. Maybe it's a product. Mm -hmm. And so we, we started to hack a few things together and show it to people. And they were like, great, can we send you some of our documents that, are, that we need to process currently? And you can show us how your algorithms do on those. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, now this is getting very real and I can't just hack things together. It, need, it needs to be more of a product. It has to be something real that people can use. Mm -hmm. I guess that when people offered to pay us real money mm -hmm. to solve a specific problem multiple times, mm -hmm. um, not the same company as well. It was three or four different companies. That is when I think we realized this is uh, a business. Right. And then it just kind of grew from, from strength to strength in that sense, where I think we've validated the demand. We know that there are lots and lots of companies and people that need this problem solved. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the early hunch where people offered um, real documents, confidential to them, and money to solve a problem mm -hmm. was quite a big deal. Wow. So, so on that point about that you've realized that or you've get you've gotten to the stage where you where people know that this is a real product and this and that there is a big demand for this who exactly are vectors customers um because you were saying that there are sort of 20 people involved in this whole chain um so who exactly does vector target so in an ideal world anyone in that in that space, mm -hmm. but strategically, we've obviously had to make a choice as to who we go after. Yeah. And so, if you if you think of this inter, uh, international logistics as a as a network, we've chosen to focus on on hubs in that network. And what that means in international logistics is is large shipping companies, mm -hmm. large freight forwarders, and large banks. Mm -hmm. um, because every any, anybody who wants to ship goods from point A to point B mm -hmm. has to utilize the services of one of these um, entities. 
They have to go via a bank, which provides credibility and trust and, and finance. They have to hire a shipping company to move the goods from point A to point B. And they have to hire a, a kind of logistics company or, a, or a, what known in the industry as a freight forwarder yeah. to manage customs clearance and uh, where the shipment is and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't require that everybody along the chain has to be using Vector. Correct. Um, a large uh, a large problem with technological innovation in the space so far has been that people have come up with solutions that require everybody to adopt a single standard and everybody to be on the same network or the same yeah. platform. And if you think about it, a coffee farmer in Colombia and a coffee trader in Amsterdam they're never going to be on the same software system yeah. mm. or even adopt the same document management standards or anything remotely like that. If you give the task of creating a standard to the large companies, they will all come up with their own standards and demand that everybody else follows them. Mm-hmm. And then you're back to square one. So a key part of what we've done is, is eliminate the need for everybody to adopt a single standard. Um, and we think that's a much better bridge to get to a stage where everybody has one standard mm-hmm. by not forcing it onto people, but just making it very simple to do what they're currently doing already. We uh, kind of crowdsourced some questions from kind of QTEX members. And so some of the questions that came up were around kind of the importance of personal networks and how that has helped you guys. Um, that is probably the most important thing in running a company uh, at the early stage. Uh, I would say personal network is more important than the, tech, te- than the technology itself in the very early days um, because when you're still trying to validate a problem, when you need guidance from, from somebody who has that problem, mm. you need somebody who you can trust. You need somebody who isn't going to say, I need to see a product, otherwise I'm not going to speak to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that only comes from personal network, from friendly contacts, from mm-hmm. people you've worked with in the past, or really um, second degree connections uh, from trusted contacts as well. So people can actually guide you through that that process and show you, okay, this is our problem. This is how we want to solve it. Mm-hmm. Can you help us? Um, this is how we do it. This is the operations. These are our workflows. Can you help us? Without that um, that kind of granular understanding, it's very hard to to solve a problem or to build a product or to build a business. And I think that's why personal network is the most important. Mm-hmm. And then if you look a little bit further as well, when it comes to, to hiring and building a team or it comes to raising capital or it comes to, to further customer development as you mature, it still relies a lot on personal network, mm-hmm. getting, getting the best people in. A large part of my time at Cambridge was um, just working in teams with people and building relationships. And then when I'm running a company now, I can actually say, hey, I've worked with you in the past. We work really well together. Mm-hmm. So why don't you come and work with us? We're doing something really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also really helps from personal network. If I haven't worked with them, they're going to be like, I don't know who, who you are. <laughs> I don't know why I should work with you. This just sounds like a crazy idea that you're harping on about. Um, but I, why should I take a risk and, and join you? Um, and I think the, the level of trust that you need early employees or early uh, co-founders to have in you, early customers to have in you, only comes from personal network. Mm-hmm. Nice. And another question that we've had from our members is about 
the work-life balance. So it's quite important for people nowadays to have this sort of work-life balance. So how do you manage this? Because I know when we were talking about this, you you used the words that you um, you work all hours and so and become best friends with your um, co-founder. So how do you sort of manage that? Um, I think everybody has to find a personal balance. Um, everybody has to find a way of working and a way of life that works for them. So, for example, I can work um, in the mornings, I can work in the nights, I can work through the day. Somebody else can maybe only work nights and they work best in the night. Mm -hmm. Somebody else needs a day off on the weekend and they work really hard for six days a week. Other people do one day of light work, six days of heavy work. Other people do two days of light work, five days of heavy work. It doesn't really matter Mm. specifically how long you're working or what you're doing as long as you have clear targets and you're hitting them somehow you're hitting them. And everybody has to find that balance for themselves. Um, But the balance is also very important. Mm -hmm. If you don't find that balance, you will burn yourself out. And there there are stories of people who've just worked so hard and so hard and so hard, and it's tiring, physically tiring, Mm -hmm. mentally tiring. And if you can't find a balance, you will lose the will to keep going in Mm -hmm. like the tough moments. And you'll you'll burn out at times, and then you'll have weeks on end when you're very unproductive. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's important to find the balance, but the balance is individual to Mm -hmm. each person. So do you and James work together to establish that balance? Yeah, I think we have our own individual balance. So James um, has a family. Um, so he has a slightly different working um, style to me, working hours that, to me. Yeah. Um, but that's a balance that works for him, for his personal situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hits all his targets. Mm-hmm. I hit all my targets. Um, just different balances. But as long as we have an understanding and respect for the other person's time and um, their particular Mm. circumstances in life, it works well. Mm. Okay. Another question we got was, if you are a technical founder, how do you decide whether you should go for the CTO role or maybe the CEO role or any other role? How do you decide that in a startup? Any advice you could give there? Mm. Um, I think the key is not to get too bogged down by what the specific title is, because what does it mean? I, I think I, I referred to this a little bit earlier, is in the mm. early days of starting a company, and early days is a, a few years. Um, <laughs> it isn't just the first few months. It means very little to say that I'm CTO, I'm CEO. You're probably going to be doing everything that the other person's doing. You're going to be utilizing your strengths. And you're going to be trying to improve your weaknesses. You're going to be learning new things along the way. You're going to, to grow personally, professionally. You're going to grow in every way possible. And it means very little to say that I'm CTO or I'm CRO or CEO or CO or CFO. It means absolutely nothing. What's most important is what are you good at mm. and what are you going to contribute to the, to make this um, a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, one way I like to think about the split is not um, by title, but by uh, areas of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So broadly, you can, you can break down what... Um, needs to be done in a company, I think, into 10 or 9 buckets. So you have engineering, analysis, customer development, product vision, hiring, model support, people management, fundraising. I may have missed one or two, but <laughs> it's, it's these broad things that, um, that everybody somehow needs to get done in a company. Um, and you need to identify which of these you're good at, mm-hmm. which of these you're not so good at, and find somebody who balances that. 
skill set with you. Mm-hmm. You may still have holes mm-hmm. and say, if I, if I started a company with, um, with somebody else that I studied with, we would have no idea what we were doing with fundraising. Or we would have no idea what we're necessarily doing with with product vision. Mm-hmm. But you pick up those skills along the way. You you have to be open to growing and learning new skills yeah. and bettering yourself as well. Mm-hmm. From a tech background, how have you found um, that sort of transition? Like you were saying, there are nine or ten buckets, if you want to call it. So um, the tech side is one of them, but a lot of that is business heavy. So how have you found that? Um, it's been... Interesting, um, in a very good way. So I have always personally wanted to to broaden my horizons in every form, in every shape and form possible. Mm. Uh, I've never really seen myself as somebody who just does the tech and just does the tech really well. For me, it's always been, here's a piece of technology. How can this be used to make something cool, mm-hmm. to make people's lives better in some form or the other? Um, and that I think that has driven me to always want to do different things. Yeah. Um, so speaking to customers, speaking to employee, potential employees, interviewing them, um, speaking to investors, that kind of stuff has always excited me a little bit, even though that isn't necessarily what I'm strongest at, mm-hmm. because I want to learn it, because I want to pick it up, because I want to, to contribute to the company in whatever way necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found it very, um, very useful to, to become a more well-rounded um, professional and a more well-rounded person. Okay. Um, mm. And a key part of this is also learning from your co-founder. Because right. like I mentioned before, hopefully you and your co-founder have a split in what you're good at and what they're good at. Mm-hmm. And that, by definition, means that they are going to do something a lot better than you are. So, for example, writing emails to customers, creating decks, speaking to investors... Somebody else is going to do that better than you. Mm-hmm. And you need to learn and see how they're doing it so you can improve and then hopefully ease, ease the burden going forward. Mm. You've already emphasized kind of the learning aspect of the journey. What are some of the things you've learned that you would now recommend to kind of an early stage founder? Two things, really. The first one is um, identify what is... Um, if you want to start a company, identify the problem that you're trying to solve. Is it a problem or not? And mm-hmm. how important or valuable a problem is it? Mm-hmm. Most people who, who don't have much experience with starting companies, me included, in, in the early days, always think of ideas. Mm-hmm. So you think of, oh, wouldn't it be cool if X, Y, Z? Wouldn't it be cool if I built an app that allowed me to find all the coolest cafes in Cambridge? And that's <laughs> that's good. Um, but everybody doesn't doesn't analyze this in the right way the correct way to analyze this is what is the problem that people face and how can i build something that will solve that problem or what is a job that people need to do and how can i build something that will allow them to do this job Um, so not thinking of ideas first but thinking of problems that can be solved Mm -hmm. Um, and you have a unique set of skills that can solve that problem. Mm. I think that is one very important thing in the early stages is how do you validate that? How do you go through that journey? How do you find out a problem which isn't really a problem? It may look like a problem, but isn't one. Mm. Um, And how do you say, okay, this looks like it isn't a problem, but actually it's a huge problem. If Mm. I find the right way to 
to like tackle this, people mm-hmm. will really jump and start using what I've built. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I would really say is the importance of not getting carried away. Mm-hmm. It, that is probably one of the the easiest things and the traps that I have fallen into multiple times is getting carried away by the good and getting carried away by the bad. Because by definition, this journey has ups and downs, mm. lots and lots of ups and downs. And if you get carried away by something that looks positive, you can really get ahead of yourself and f- and take your eye off the ball. And if you get carried away by something that looks negative, you can again do the same thing and like sink into your pit of despair. Mm. Um, <laughs> And then realize, oh, well, maybe this wasn't such a bad thing at all. Um, So there have been loads and loads of ups and downs. And I've looked back um, kind of now a year, year and a half later, and I was like, that wasn't really an up. I was just excited for absolutely no reason. There was never any chance of that working out. And on on the flip side, I was like, I was crushed when that happened. Um, But in in the long run, we, we seemed to play our cards relatively well. And it didn't actually make a difference. Mm. So the important thing is to keep going. Somehow keep going without getting carried away by the good or the bad. Just mm-hmm. keep your eye on the ball and keep at it. Oh, that's really good advice. Nice. I heard a saying once that says you can only understand life looking backwards, but you can only live life going forwards. So Very <laughs> I think, insightful. <laughs> I think that very much applies to, to what you were saying. I think so, yeah. Nice. Um, so I think that's pretty much all we have time for, but just a sort of fun question to finish off with. Um, so in an ideal world, what would you what would you like to be if you could be anything? Astronaut. Hey. Um, when I was when I was like really young, I think my dad bought me an astronaut jacket, mm-hmm. and I think since then I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I realized that I'm going to be no good at it, <laughs> so I ab- abandoned all hope of uh-huh. astronaut for that reason. Fair enough. I mean, commercial commercial space flights are becoming a thing. Yes, maybe there's still hope for me. <laughs> maybe. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been great to have you, and really interesting to hear about your sort of journey. So if, if we have any listeners in the kind of logistics space or international trade space and they're really interested in what you guys are doing, how can they find out more about you guys? Yeah, so I think the, the website is relatively self-explanatory. It's www.vector.ai. Um, James and I are fairly easily reachable by email. So my email is on the website. James's email is on the website. I think those are the most useful ones. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. So it was really interesting to talk to Nisog today. And something that really surprised me was that he mentioned that companies that are involved in the sort of logistics and freight business have hundreds of millions of bits of paperwork that Mm. they have to process every year. And that's just a huge number. And if Vector can solve their problems in terms of making that a smoother process, I think that's an incredible market to tap into. Mm. I completely agree. And I was quite impressed and kind of it resonated with me that he said, as a founder, it's really important not to get too obsessed with titles. So he's the CTO, but he's also the co-founder. Yeah. And he very much emphasized that kind of you can almost deconstruct the tasks in a, in a startup and then kind of distribute these kind of uh, responsibilities to the people who have the best abilities and not compete yeah. with a certain kind of titles around them yeah yeah i agree he mentioned the sort of idea of having a 10 10 buckets that you mm. that every company has to fulfill and spread that effort between the fa- between the co-founders and i think 
yeah, definitely. That was a nice way of looking at, at it rather than splitting it into the roles of CEO, CTO. Mm. So I particularly enjoyed that. And you also said learning is a huge part of the experience. So you don't have to know everything from the start. In fact, you said um, you make a lot of errors and you have to learn from the good stuff and the bad stuff. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of other people as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think something that he mentioned towards the end about um, about the approach to how you start your company. So knowing that something is a problem and then knowing how valuable that problem is, I thought was a good way to think of it because rather mm. than a lot of people thinking, oh, this would be a cool idea. Right. Although he did mention having an app for cafes in Cambridge, which I think is definitely a cool idea. <laughs> so thanks very much again to Nisarg for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech, um, who've all been working really hard behind the scenes, and also to Ideaspace for providing the venue for recording. Thank you so much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. Mm-hmm.